I'm Ryan E.K., and this is the FEMA Podcast. FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program turned 50 this month, and just like us, the program has seen its fair share of growing pains and noteworthy achievements to become what it is today. I spent more than a decade working in the program and was privileged to spend much of that time with a handful of people who were there during the early years. Their stories, and honestly, their passion for the program, is something you just don't see or hear about very often in government. In this episode, we'll explore the early history of the flood insurance program as experienced by a couple of guys who I've come to think about as evangelists for floodplain management. I started at FEMA in 2000, and I joined the flood insurance program in 2001. I was gone in 1999. You were working with ecology with the state. No, not, not till 2001. 2001, and how long were you at ecology? Nine years. Nine years. <clears throat> I worked for him as a contractor for a couple of years. You did? And I think, didn't Carl work for you too? Oh, in the beginning, yeah. Oh, yeah. Until 99. And then he, he stopped in what, 2006 or 7? Mm-hmm. What? 6 or 7. You don't even know. I'm supposed to remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and how many times did you quit working for Chuck? Oh, God. Oh, three. Geez. Three? Three or four. Yeah. And how many times you came back to work for him? <laughs> came back with my hat in my hand. <laughs> I always had to eat a little humble pie. Your yeah, pension diminished. And we always got along great. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. It was a good time. Yeah. And we do it. Before we talk to them, it's important to understand the context of what led to them being part of this story. Catastrophic hurricanes and devastating storms are a mainstay in our history. From the Galveston hurricane in 1900 that caused an estimated 8,000 deaths, to the 1965 Hurricane Betsy that wrought destruction across the Gulf Coast totaling $1.4 billion. These and other events severely impacted communities nationwide, demonstrating a significant need for protection programs to aid recovery. Congress responded by passing the National Flood Insurance Act in 1968 to create the Federal Insurance Administration. By 1969, the National Flood Insurance Program rolled out, offering communities federally-backed flood insurance for their residents if these jurisdictions agreed to maintain minimum floodplain management standards. But there was a hitch. Insurance was optional, and nobody was buying. By 1973, Congress would pass the Flood Disaster Protection Act which would, among other things, require flood insurance to be purchased for structures located in the floodplain. This was a big deal and would require the right people. It's where we'll pick up with Chuck Steele and Carl Cook. I'm Carl Cook, retired FEMA Region 10 Mitigation Director. I'm Chuck Steele, retired FEMA Mitigation Director between 1979 and 1999. Uh, I started FEMA in 1973. It was with HUD then, yes. Jimmy Carter was the one who created uh, FEMA, and that was a few years afterwards. So how did you get involved in the flood insurance program? I was uh, directed to the program by my master professor, getting a master's in environmental science from the College of Forestry, Syracuse. He said, you know, the federal, it was federal legislation, land use legislation, it just got shot down. But this is about the closest thing to a federal land use program. Mm-hmm. And so I went to D.C. and looked him up and got the job. Well, my start was totally different. I was with HUD in Portland, the Portland area office, which is a sub-office of the Seattle Regional Office at the time. And um, uh, the big thing that happened was uh, the, the 
uh, Hurricane Agnes in, in 1972 and the Great Lakes flooding in 1972 and 73. And what that spurred was uh, uh, George Bernstein was the head of the program at the time, and he was at a restaurant one night and writing on his napkin basically the Flood Disaster Protection Act, and w- which was on his napkin. And um, uh, he, they knew back in Washington, D.C. that that act was going to be passed. They had the votes for it uh, in the summer of 1973. So what they did was they made a call to every regional office to send as many people as you could to be trained in the National Flood Insurance Program because it had been in effect for five years, but nobody was buying the insurance. Mm-hmm. And uh, they knew that the Flood Disaster Protection Act was going to change that because the insurance was going to become mandatory. And so uh, myself and a fellow by the name of George Heron from Seattle Regional Office went back to D.C. and it was in the Alexandria area. And we met people from every region. There were many, many people there, a week-long intensive training course. We all learned to do that, to you know, what the program was about. And uh, we were told to go out and enroll as many communities as you possibly can uh, and try to get it done as quick as possible because that law was going to be passed on the last day of 1973, which it was. What were the early days like? It was a very uh, exciting time. It was, it was like a movement or a mission. Everybody knew everybody, especially after that Great Lakes thing. You got to know everybody throughout the whole country um, after those meetings back in Washington, D.C. It was kind of, we were spirited believers in what we, what we actually thought we were going to accomplish. It was a great time. I've never been able to match that time in any other kind of program you know, since that time, but it was a great time to be in the program. Yeah. Well, it's that enthusiasm. I mean, I've met yeah. over my career here. Um, a handful of folks that kind of overlapping time frame as I was coming into the agency and you guys were um, uh, leaving there's not just a couple of you I mean there's a, quite a few that I met over the period that were involved in it, Wisconsin or Minnesota or back east or the Gulf that were really passionate about this and I'm just curious where that came from because I don't think people think of federal employees as particularly passionate yeah. about something like it, this. It, it was easier back then. Yeah. The federal government yeah, wasn't seen as this big, bad, evil thing. And it was a small cadre of people. They were Dick Krim handpicked. They were everybody. Richard Krim was the assistant administrator of the Flood Insurance Department within the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, I remember when I was working in D.C., he had trouble staffing Region 9 because they wanted to put somebody in who was left over from the region, and he wouldn't allow it. So it just went unfilled. So I would fly to the West Coast, work for two weeks, Mm -hmm. fly back to D.C., work for two weeks, and keep going back and forth like that uh, because he would not allow anybody that he had not handpicked to be in the flood insurance program. And he was, uh, he was a smart guy. Uh, he liked the environment. He knew insurance. The goal was to enroll communities, but how many of you were there? Well, for me, I was I, was, I stayed down in Portland uh, with, the, with the area office down there, and I, I handled uh, Oregon, and George Heron handled Washington, and we didn't do too much in Idaho and Alaska in the, in the early years. But we went out, and every day we went to meetings. Every day we, we, we covered so many communities. I can't tell you how many. I don't have a number. I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. rack up a number. I just know that one day I did 12 communities in one day, starting at 7.30 in the morning, ending at about 11 o'clock at night. Um, so... We, it was very intensive, but it was fun. I mean, yeah. we were driving just through counties, and every community we went to, we stopped and, and gave them the spiel. 
we all had an outline. Everybody had their own outline. We all approached it a little bit differently because uh, there really was no direction at that point. It was kind of up to us. And uh, we went through the program. Uh, we gave them a one-page form to fill out, and we gave them a sample resolution, which was easy to pass. They didn't pass it when we were there. They had to have a council there. But, but uh, the one-page form, we actually helped them to fill out, and that, that was all there was to it. What did you say at those meetings? What did they make of you guys just showing up? The communities oftentimes didn't quite know how to deal with this. Yeah. These guys breezing into town saying, look, you know, you need to do this. Them saying, well, what happens if we don't? And the hammers were pretty heavy. Um, we'd say, well, you, you, may, you won't get mortgage insurance. Um, and, well, what's, you know, what, why do you need that? Well, all federally backed lending institutions require it. So you pretty much dry up the mortgage money. When you tell a community that, to say, okay, okay, yeah. we'll do it. We got to know every road, every backwoods community, mm-hmm. um, met with commissioners in rural communities. Uh, you learned a lot about where you lived. So is the story of you actually having a van and driving out into the <laughs> the rural communities with a, with a suit and a, and a tent and just setting up meetings and driving, is that a... The, the, some of that happened. I, sometimes I would take my, I did have a van and I would sleep in the van. I remember the meeting in Conconelli, had the meeting and then retired to the van after hitting the local pub for a couple of beers. Um, looking at how the flood program would be applied to Indian reservations did get me a camper for a month to drive around and hit as many Indian reservations in the Northwest as I could to see, to look at their land use patterns and see how the flood insurance program could be applied there. And that was just a real hoot. And it was a real education. Mm-hmm. And it, it did end up with uh, a policy that stayed for, it lasted for I think still in effect. several decades mm-hmm. in the flood insurance program on how to apply the program to the Indian reservations. A, a real positive part of what we were doing was we had something to offer. We had the insurance. We didn't know anything about the insurance, frankly, but we had insurance to say that their citizens could get insurance and therefore continue to make loans on the condition that you adopt a minimal measure that deals with just the floodplain part of your community. So there was a, kind of a carrot and a stick, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a real incentive for them to, to get in because that meant that their citizens would be able to buy flood insurance. And so the the whole program, the original idea was based on that kind of three-legged stool, right? There's a resolution, there's an ordinance, and there's a map. And since people can't see what that map looks like, you're explaining the contour intervals. So maybe, I mean, how accurate or how precise were these maps? Very inaccurate. There are 2,000-scale maps. They're, they're flood, USGS flood-prone quads. We've all used them going hiking or camping or whatever. And each of the line on the map, the way the map was drawn, the line itself was like 125 feet. And the contour interval, generally, if you got something close to 20-foot contour interval, you're lucky. So when they put them on the maps, that was it was difficult because the original maps, they blocked out, the, they, they made sure that the lines followed roads so the insurance people could read the maps. 
they later <coughs> they changed every rectilinear map to a curvilinear map because water doesn't do that. It doesn't follow the roads. Uh, so the maps were not a good thing at all. And in many cases, they didn't have maps, but yeah. they still knew they were going to be getting maps, and we, we wanted them to adopt a resolution. The resolution in the beginning only said one basic thing that we could tell them the, uh, as to how to regulate with regard to the maps, and that was you have to make sure the new construction is reasonably safe from flooding. I would say the maps weren't inaccurate. They were imprecise. So what do you mean by that? You know, the, the, the boundary lines weren't right down to where you could paste them off. They were wider than that due to the scale of the map. Right. And so you could, the boundary line itself could cover 100, 200 feet. Yeah. And when you're making a decision about whether you have to buy flood insurance or don't have to buy flood insurance, you're concerned about that. Yeah. And that's why these cases of imprecision drove the flood insurance program to try and refine the line, make it more and more precise. And of course, as we did that, it meant more and more engineering and more and more mapping and more and more money. It, it was, it, the maps were frequently yeah. overestimations of the floodplain. Yeah. And it wasn't because anybody was mean-spirited or said, you know, let's really get these communities. It was engineers who yeah. were making judgments in the study, and they'd say, well, it, it might be here, but we want to be safe, so let's add a little little more. And if you do that to a, in a dozen different places in the study, pretty soon you've mm. built up quite a layer of icing on the cake there, and so you end up with a pretty high flood elevation, and the locals would frequently say, God, you know, we've seen some really bad floods here, and it's never gotten up that high. Well, then it would be our mission to, to try and argue with them, and that was that was difficult, particularly in cases where you felt in your heart they were right. And the importance of that, those maps, those early maps, is that that was uh, HUD's official notice to the community that you have flood hazards, per the law. Mm-hmm. The law said they had to be officially notified. What was the official notification? It was the map. So the map started a process. Uh, they had one year to join the program before the sanctions went into effect, or, or they would go into effect after that year. Uh, so that was the, the map was extremely important, even though it was extremely imprecise. How well did communities do with regulating building and maintaining compliance? First of all, emphasis on <clears throat> compliance and enforcement. Uh, and that was started in the mid-'80s, I think it was, with a community uh, community assistance program and a community compliance program um, where we agreed to do CAVs in every community three to five years. In other words, a three to five year cycle or 20% of the, the communities in one year. Um, and that was the first time that they emphasized enforcement that much because they were seeing that there was not good enforcement. And some communities were doing okay. They, you know, have some local staff who was a, a zealot, hard charger, or They'd have uh, an elected official that said, ah, we're not going to mess with that. We can build the way we want. And then we'd have structures that were not compliant, and we'd have to threaten them with suspension, probation, all that. And that was more a punitive, confrontational Mm -hmm. set of 
set of meetings. It wasn't as that, much fun. Yeah, that was not as much fun. The interesting thing was you mentioned probation because the original law simply said suspension. And suspension is done in Washington, D.C. It's not done in the region. It's done by the Federal Insurance Administrator. Uh, but they introduced sus- uh, probation at that time, and that put the regions into it because the regions uh, put a community on probation. And probation was just the next step before suspension, but they were given a year to fix things. In the meantime, in that year, every person had to pay, every person at flood insurance had to pay 50 bucks extra uh, as a surcharge. And they didn't like that. So, so they would get on their community to fix the problem so I don't have to pay 50 bucks every year because you're not doing your job. I think probation was a, a, a big step in terms of getting better enforcement. Yeah. Was the original plan to systematically remove flood-prone buildings? Originally, that was not the case. Mm-hmm. The, the, the idea was that we would take care of providing insurance for those structures that got hit uh, in return for communities requiring new structures to be built so they were safe. Mm-hmm. At this point, Chuck's going to refer to the 1362 program. 1362 is a shorthand way of referring to Section 1362 of the National Flood Insurance Act of 1968. Basically, it authorized the government to purchase flood damaged properties. Well, uh, it actually wasn't the initial law. It never was used, the 1362 program. Uh, it was used for the first time uh, on the Toodle River after Mount St. Helens. This was the first buyouts that occurred in the United States of America. Um, it, they were not the typical buyout because homes were obliterated, as you probably could guess. But that was the first time it was used. That between 1980 and 1993, a thousand structures have been bought through Section 1362, which is good mitigation, getting rid of the structures, getting them out of the floodplain. But that's not many structures for 13 years. That's when the Volcker Amendment was passed, and that's the amendment to the Stafford Act that created the that the buyout program in the disaster programs. Mm-hmm. And and four years after that, there was not 1,000, there was 25,000 homes bought out after that, and it continues to this day. As, as the program kind of matures, and you've got the first map out there, you've had that first visit with the community, you're circling back a few years later, what did that, what had changed? One of the things is we became institutionalized. <laughs> um, we're not the freewheeling people that we were in the beginning. In the beginning, it was a totally different thing. It was just every day was fun, and it was interacting with uh, any other people who did the same thing. But uh, later on, this it really became institutionalized, and we had to become institutionalized. The, the good part of that it, uh, it was the fact, fact that it got us involved uh, real closely with the emergency management community, which we hadn't been in the past. Uh, but uh, getting involved with emergency management was good because that's where the money was, particularly after a disaster. And working with those people after a disaster, hundreds and hundreds of homes that have been moved and elevated and other kinds of mitigation actions that we could not have done absent uh, you know, the emergency management folks. Mm-hmm. So that was a positive thing. Fifty years later, the National Flood Insurance Program is a sophisticated federal program that is relevant across the nation and has deep connections to emergency management and the insurance industry. But its roots are still visible. The conversations and partnerships that Carl and Chuck started with communities and tribes nearly 50 years ago continue today. The maps and processes may look different, but their legacy of passion and commitment to the vision of a prepared and resilient nation remains stronger than ever. 
We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join in the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.